Uh, I saw this study recently on BBC News. I, I don't have any social media, which make, makes me feel really self-righteous, but also it means that I just spend a lot of time reading BBC News. So I'm still getting a scroll. It's just not anything that you guys are doing. It's just what's happening in the world. But I saw this um, study that was um, from a university in Scotland. They had done the study about decision-making and they came up with this thing, which, um, man, it's really gonna blow your mind. They find out, according to researchers, who I assume were paid, that making decisions on an empty stomach can lead to poor choices. <laughs> you don't say. I mean, I think they could have like saved some money and just hung out at a Sainsbury's at like 10 o'clock on a Sunday evening to see like people walking around with a pizza and a pot noodle and some like reduced pancakes and a bunch of bananas just looking dazed and like everything is hard and they don't actually want the bananas. They're just there to hide all the like rubbish that they're, you know, that's to kind of counter the self-service till shame. Do you know what I mean? Like whenever you're scared that other people are judging what you're buying, so you buy like one healthy thing to hide all of the rubbish underneath. Is that just me? That's what I do. <laughs> that is genuinely what I do. Um, hunger leads to poor decisions, apparently. I'm so glad that that's what some universities are spending time researching. But decisions are hard because uh, our choices are endless, right? You know? I mean, I was thinking about this. I seem to have spent a lot of time in the supermarket. I was thinking about this when I was looking um, at how many different types of milk there are. You think there's just one type, but like things that do not produce milk are now milk. What is with that? You've got like almond milk and oat milk. Well, sounds gross. And hazelnut milk, which smells like Nutella, but it does not taste like Nutella. It tastes like death. It is awful. In case you can't tell, I'm a purist. Uh, I'm not a fan of the alternative milk. Respect to you non-dairy folk. I'm assuming there are probably a lot of you in the room. I couldn't do what you do, mostly because I don't want to. <laughs> but uh, also because, you know, I'm just a woman of strongly held convictions about dairy. And that's who I am. But we have these endless choices, don't we? And the thing is, our choices, they really matter. From small choices, like, you know, to what you buy in the supermarket at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night, because that does matter, to really big things. Our choices matter. And choice is something that we have been given. Choice is something that we have been given by God. He does not rule by force. He challenges us, but he's not a forceful God. He opens up choices to us, and then it is up to us how we live. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus constantly challenges our choices. He challenges our actions. He challenges our opinions. He challenges our hearts. He opens up to us this other way all the time. He opens up an alternative way of living in the world a way of living in this new kingdom that he has come to establish. 
And the thing is, it's not going to be what we expected. I think that's what a lot of us have found as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. This way of living in the kingdom of God is not necessarily what we expect it to be. And some of the time it's going to be hard and most likely it's going to cost us something. But if our choices make us, then I want to be and I want us to be a people who choose the Jesus way of living. So we're going to read from the Bible. If you have a Bible, you can grab it, um, follow along on your phone. This is Matthew chapter 6, um, and I'm going to read from verse 19. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your hearts will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Will you come and will you breathe on these words? Will you come and speak to our hearts and to our minds? We open ourselves up to you. We want to hear what you have to say to us this evening. Amen. So in this passage, we have presented to us a series of alternatives. And this is a little bit of a pattern in the Sermon on the Mount and in Jesus' teaching in, in general. So earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he kept saying this thing, you've heard it said, but now I say to you. We spent several weeks here going through that, all of those different, you've heard it said, but now I say to you. And what he was doing there was he was just challenging their preconceptions. He was saying, you've heard it said that there's this thing, and that's true but also it looks like this and he just blows it out of the water for us and this is kind of similar in a way he's offering us um, again th three different ways of thinking in this passage a series of alternatives three different choices we have two treasures two conditions and two masters so the first two treasures treasures on earth and treasures in heaven a classic reading of this could be treasures here are not important. Don't store up anything here. Give it all away. Better yet, don't bother getting it in the first place. Only the stuff that you store far away in heaven actually matters. Is that a little oversimplified? Sure. But I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think that Jesus is saying here that having stuff in our lives right now is bad and that only the treasures of heaven or the treasures to come are good. I really don't believe that that's fully what that means. But it's like everything that Jesus says. He's saying, come and see this treasure stuff that you keep getting caught up in. Come and see it from my perspective because I want you to look at it with my eyes because what we treasure matters. And what we treasure defines us 
so much more significantly, much more deeply than we often allow room for. Don't store up treasures on earth, store up treasures in heaven. Again, you could get caught up in what it does and doesn't prohibit, but the baseline is it doesn't prohibit having. It doesn't prohibit buying or getting stuff. It doesn't even prohibit wanting or liking stuff. You should look after your money. You should save, so I've heard. You should be wise with your money. You should invest it, whatever that is. None of that is prohibited here. The warning that Jesus is presenting to us here is about the selfish accumulation of stuff, of money, of treasure, with no regard for the needs of the world. Why is that the warning? Because Jesus wants us to feel that need. Jesus wants us to feel the need of the world the needs that are on our doorstep and the needs that are in countries far away from us. Because we cannot skip over the fact that we serve a God who is unreservedly on the side of the poor. And we have a savior who was born in squalor and whose pay grade was non-existent. We should feel the need, but so often we don't. And I think that that has something to do with our hearts. What you treasure matters more than you know, and its effects run very, very deep. I was uh, re-watching Aladdin recently. Not a fan of the remake. It was fine, you know, but I just, I like the original. And there's this bit in Aladdin, I can sense that you're wondering where I'm going. Don't worry, I will get there. There's this bit in Aladdin where it's near the beginning, they're in the Cave of Wonders, they have a task, get the lamp, don't touch anything, and they're nearly there, and then Abu. The little monkey, he just... Oh, he kind of gets distracted by this big jewel and it's really exciting and he's like, it's swimming in his eyes. The treasure is just like reflecting and the magic carpet is trying to hold him back, but he can't. Magic carpet, by the way, I think is the unsung hero of Aladdin. Rewatch it and you'll see what I mean. He's amazing, does so much stuff, never gets the credit. Per magic carpet. But little Abu, He's like looking at this thing and then he grabs it. He does what he shouldn't do. He gets distracted by the great big bit of treasure. And what happens then is that suddenly everything bursts into flames and the floor turns to lava and we're in a horror movie instead of a Disney movie. But it's kind of the same deal for us without the monkey and the magic lamp. But the treasure swimming in our eyes thing the lifting of our attention off the things that matter. That's the point here. We don't feel the need of the world because too often we do not actually look at it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.
What is your heart tethered to? Materialism, appetite, this get more, buy more, just one more thing of greed tethers our hearts to the earth. If our stuff here is our only focus and is the most important thing to us, then we are placing our allegiance with something that will not last. And when our hearts get tangled up in that, as they always do, it gets messy. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is establish heavenly treasure here. Establish things here that will last. Establish ways of living and interacting with money and with possessions and stuff that has an eternal perspective because that is a fail-safe investment. What will last? Well, the stuff won't. It just won't. But the priority will. The attitudes will. The direction of our hearts will. What is your heart tethered to? When our treasure is here, and only here, we become consumed by it. That's why we always want more and it never, ever satisfies. We fall prey to that again and again and again. Whether you know Jesus super well or really not at all, we can all relate to that. It just doesn't satisfy. And we fool ourselves every time that we think it will. But when our treasure has the perspective of heaven behind it, the key there being a perspective that is bigger than us, then the pressure and the weight of more is met by Jesus. And we have room suddenly to be able to embrace his compassion for those around us. Your heart needs room to be moved. If it is clogged up with stuff, it'll get stuck. What you treasure matters. So we've got two treasures and then two conditions, light and darkness. Jesus moves from what's going on with your heart to what's going on with your eyes. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. This is about vision and perspective. And there's a bit of a narrative in the Bible about eyes and hearts. At times in the Bible, they're used almost as synonyms of each other. So to set the heart and to fix the eye are approached in a similar way. They're almost one and the same. John Stott is a Bible scholar and he talks about this and he says that just as the fitness of our eye can affect our whole body, so does our ambition, our perspective, our, our vision affect our whole lives. 
what our hearts are tied to matters and what our eyes are drawn to matters. So what are you looking to? What are you paying attention to? What are your eyes drawn to? We probably wouldn't categorize it as light and darkness in our own lives because that seems a little bit intense and extreme. But the reality is, is that a compromised vision is a slow and steady work of deterioration. It is bit by bit. We won't notice it until our vision and perspective on our lives, on our money, on our possessions, on our property, on our situations is totally clouded. It is bit by bit. What you are looking to really matters. And what's the killer? Well, honestly, I think that a big part of it is comparison. Because comparison at its most base is they have what I don't have and I want it. And it's a killer. The old school Bible word for it could be covet, to yearn, to desire, to be consumed with desire for something that another has. Comparison will suck the light out of your life. Scan your week. Have you coveted anything this week? Have you yearned after something that another had? Have you compared this week? Compared your own situation to someone else's? I have. And some of you might say, well, Yes, I have, but for very good reason. You know, because I hate my job and they just got another promotion. Or everyone else knows what they're doing with their life and I have no idea. Or my entire class is smarter than me and everyone else asks way better questions than me and I clearly am not cut out for this. Or I'm single. Or I don't like where I live. Or I'm not where I thought I would be or should be at this age. Or everyone else finds this stuff easy apart from me. On and on and on with every glance or gape of comparison. It is getting a little bit darker. There is one whose opinion of you is so high. God's love and delight in you is incomparable. He is so fascinated by you that he took the time to count every hair on your head because he wanted to know how many there were. And he thinks about you so much that were those thoughts to be numbered, they would be more than the grains of sand on the beach. 
such lengths he has gone to for you to know your worth. And when you compare, when we covet, when we do that, we shun the light. We edge over into darkness with each step saying, I think I belong here. What is going on with your eyes? Where are you looking? What has your attention? Because when our attention and our vision is Jesus, we see the light even in the dark places. Even in the dark times, we see the light. How do I know that? Psalm 139, verse 12 says, Even the darkness is not dark to you. It's talking about God. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Light and darkness. We are made for the light. But so often we dip our toes or fling our entire selves into the dark places of comparison. And let me tell you, we don't belong there. Our final choice is uh, two masters. And it's not like a, a golem situation here. He's kind, of, he's kind of really got the pop culture monopoly on the word master, hasn't he? I'm not going to do an impression because that would be embarrassing. And also, a uh, confession is actually that I have not seen Lord of the Rings the whole way through. Uh, I think I actually heard some gasps. I mean, there are three of them, right? It's too many. And uh, they're really long. Man, they're so long and also a little bit boring. Anyway, so this is not about Lord of the Rings, but it is about a choice of who we serve. And Jesus is really not mincing his words here. I don't really think there are many occasions um, where Jesus does mince his words. But this is one of those occasions when he is bearing, being very clear and straight with us, and for good reason, because this one is of the utmost importance. I think this is the, the point here. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. God can only be served with complete and exclusive devotion. You cannot share God with other loyalties. That's why so often we talk and we need to talk about holding things lightly and being open-handed. We need to be reminded of that again and again because I am predisposed to close my fists and to hold on for dear life to the things around me. But that is not what we have been asked to do as followers of Jesus. 
And so often we wait for the time when we're going to get around to sorting out this God and money stuff, don't we? Like we wait until we have all our, our ducks in a row, you know? Or we discount ourselves of opportunity, absolve ourselves of responsibility because of our stage of life or our financial situation or whatever other excuse happens to be percolating. I think there are probably three main groups in the room. I mean, there are probably more, but let's go with three. There are those here who truly do not have who are without, whose living situations and bank balances do not reflect a happy picture. And I think that the Lord would want to pour out over you an overwhelming sense of worth. I feel like he would say, you are not less than. Whatever lack there is in your life that you have let define you, that is not how I see you. You are more than enough. And we get to be a church that also says that too. We get to be the ones who also pour out over those who are in need. An overwhelming sense of worth. There's a, a scene we read with Jesus when he's with his followers and he watches in the temple this old woman give everything that she has. It doesn't look like everything because it's not very much, but it is, and she knows it. So sacrificially, she gives out of her poverty. And I think that Jesus would say, Today I see your sacrifice, you have not gone unnoticed by me. The second group, I think, are those who have enough. And I'm in this one. We live fairly comfortably. We buy some nice things. We maybe save a little. Sometimes income is fluctuating, but mostly we're afloat. And I think that this group falls prey to the peril of comparison more than any other because we spend a good chunk of our time either biding our time or obsessing over what we do and do not have. And so our response then becomes that we hold back. We hold back out of fear. We hold back our money because we don't have loads of it and we're scared. We hold back our time because it's precious and it's ours. I think that Jesus would say to us, to many probably in this room, in your situation right now, you have enough. You are fit for purpose in this world of generosity. So learn wisdom now. Don't wait for it. Practice wholehearted devotion now. Don't wait to be generous because when you wait to be generous, you miss out on so much. Learn kingdom of God extravagance here. 
You have enough. And then the third group, to whom I think the greatest responsibility lies, those that have a lot. I love and I'm so inspired again and again by the immense generosity that I see in this church amongst those who have a lot. There are stories after stories here in this room and across our whole church family of extreme and abundant generosity and lots of them actually are unknown because that was never the point. Last year, just in case I didn't have quite enough to do, I decided that I would start studying again and it will probably take me like all of my 30s to complete it. It is like if ever there was a slow and steady work, this is it, it is snail's pace. But I really felt that I should do it and I felt that God wanted me to do it as well. And I knew that it would be a bit of a stretch because it costs a lot of money to learn things, which is really annoying. But I, was, I went back to the well-used bank of mum to uh, borrow some more money, just add it to the large sum that I already owe. And I was like, okay, this is maybe going to be okay. I'm not sure, but I guess it's okay. You know, my, my like, loan shark is my mother, so that should be fine. And then, out of the blue, someone from this church family emailed me and said, Naomi, I feel like I've been prompted um, to give you some money because I towards your study, I, I, want, I want to pay f for that. I want to pay for you to do that. I think God's prompting me to do that and I want to be obedient to him. They weren't just contributing and easing my financial load. They were just paying for it, the whole thing. And it took me a long time to accept it because no one's ever done anything like that for me before that I'm not related to. You know, that is the generosity of Jesus. And it bowls me over and it blesses me and it challenges me as well. Because then it means that I get to live differently too. From everyone who has been given much, much more will be asked. From everyone who has been entrusted with much, much more will be demanded. I think that Jesus' call to you today is to remember the responsibility. Look at what you have been entrusted with by him. Your wealth is a responsibility and an opportunity, an opportunity to feel the need to anticipate the need and to be moved with compassion in action. So, where do we land? Well, I think at a choice. Jesus is doing something among us as a church. I think in this season, he has been and is refining us. And he refines us so that we will be more and more fit for purpose in his kingdom and in his plan for right now. And sometimes refining feels good and a lot of the time it feels a little bit hard. So if over this series you've been a little bit jarred now and again, I'm totally okay with that. 
because that is the refining of Jesus and it's for a bigger purpose. What would it be like if we lived freely and lightly with our money and our possessions? If we busted comparison because we knew our worth and if we were wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus with everything that we have, I tell you, this city would not be the same. It really wouldn't. This family wouldn't be the same. The people around us and our lives would not be the same. But it starts with a choice. And Jesus and his kindness has been provoking stuff in us. And the thing about the kindness of Jesus is that it is active. It always leads somewhere. It always does something in us. It leads us to repentance. It leads us to a place of shift and of sorry and of change. And so we're going to take communion together. And I think that that place of repentance could be the holiest and most productive place to go from today. None of us have got this fully right. Maybe you have let your lack define you. Maybe you're holding back in these growing years from giving that which you've worked hard for because it's earmarked already and when you're comfortable, then you'll get to be generous. Or maybe the treasure has been swimming in your eyes and you have placed some of your identity in your wealth. We don't often talk about repentance, but it is a beautiful thing. The Bible tells us that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And then also that from repentance, we go out in joy. So we know that the end is good. But there is something really powerful about doing that together. But our city needs us to get a right attitude about money and about our possessions. Your kids need you to get the right attitude about that. Your flatmates, your colleagues. Think what would happen if right through every generation and financial situation in this church, six, seven hundred people, if we got generosity, if we got a right attitude about this. It starts here. It starts in our hearts. And I want to respond to the call of Jesus to be generous with everything that I have, not just the things that I want to be generous with. And so I'm gonna ask you to do something with me. I'm gonna ask you to kneel, and I'm gonna do it too, and I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna take communion. But this is a, a sign of that repentance, a sign of saying, God, I'm, I'm up for something different. I recognize the places in my life where I haven't been wise or I've been holding back and I don't want to do that anymore. And as I come to celebrate the abundant generosity that you have given me through salvation in Jesus, then I want to do that with a right heart. And so I'm going to kneel. And if you want to kneel, you can kneel with me. Father, I am sorry for where I have set my heart 
on the treasure that doesn't last. I am sorry for where I have looked with comparison again and again and turned away from your light. I am sorry for where I have shared you with other loyalties, where my devotion to you has not been complete and wholehearted. I want to use whatever you have given me really well. And I want that to be a witness of who you are to this city that you love and to the people around me. I want to learn to live freely and lightly before you, God. <laughs>